Well, it's crazy that this is our 19th week in the book of First Peter, and we're finally putting a period on it. It's, it's been a good journey, hasn't it? Man, it's been a sweet time together. So next week, I want to encourage you to be here as we launch a new five-week series. We're going to be uh, spending the next five weeks in Acts chapter 2, looking specifically at verses 42 through 47 and considering uh, the early church. Um, so we're going to do a five-week series called The Devoted Community, and we're going to be looking specifically at these, these core uh, things that the early church devoted themselves to. So it's going to be a really good series. I want to encourage you to come back. But this morning, we're going to round out our time in First Peter. My friend uh, Chris Culver likes to say that we are Easter people living in an Advent world. We're Easter people living in an Advent world. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we're, we're people of hope. We live in the reality of new creation. Christ has come and he's inaugurated his kingdom. He came declaring the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here, it's upon you. And through his death and resurrection, the definitive battle against sin and death has been won. By faith in Jesus, eternity has exploded into our hearts. We participate even now in the life to come as we follow the ways of Jesus. We're Easter people. There's hope. There's new life. But we live in an Advent world. Life is still fraught with difficulties. The remnants of sin subject the creation to frailty. We still battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And though we belong to the kingdom of heaven, we presently live in the fallen system of this world as we await the second advent of Jesus. He's come, but he's coming again. And so we live in the in-between, don't we? Burke Parsons captures our longing well. He says, this world is not our home, but it will be. We live out our days in this sad world, eagerly awaiting the new heaven and new earth, clinging daily to this promise. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's the promise that we hold on to every day. And until then, we live as pilgrims on our journey home. And we are homesick for a place we've actually never been. We are foreigners and aliens and strangers in a strange land whose citizenship belongs in heaven. This is essentially the entire theme of the book of 1 Peter, living as Easter people in an Advent world. And as Peter closes his letter to these believers in Asia Minor, he, he wants to offer them some final words of hope to help them live as Easter people in an Advent world. 2,000 years removed from Peter's letter to his original recipients, we still await and anticipate the second advent of Christ. We're reminded that with the Lord, a thousand years is as a day. 
that the Lord is not slow as some would count slowness, but he's patient, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The Lord tarries his return so that more people might believe the gospel and be saved. It's the kindness of God that prolongs his second coming. And so we live our lives situated in the filibuster of history between Christ's first and second coming, a period characterized by patient anticipation. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm terrible at patience, especially when pain is involved. And Peter's been telling us over and over in this letter that that's certain. That in this life there will be various trials. That the fiery ordeal is part of the Christian program. We've seen that again and again and again as we've gone through this letter together. But as, as Peter closes his letter, what he wants to do is offer some perspective and hope for persevering as we await Jesus' return. Peter punctuates his epistle with words of encouragement to help believers like you and me live with Easter hope in an Advent World. And so I want us to notice just four final words of exhortation for living in the in-between this morning. Peter's going to tell us that we have a God who cares for us so we can be comforted. He's going to tell us that we have an enemy who wants to devour us so we need to be watchful. He's going to tell us that we have a future that is assured to us and so we can be hopeful. And that finally we have grace to guide us and so we should be steadfast. So let's look at these one at a time. Let's first look at this word of comfort that Peter gives us. Theologian Karl Barth was once asked if he could summarize his entire life's work of theology in one sentence. Now, now for some context, uh, Bart wrote Church Dogmatics, which was 14 volumes long. And, and these were thick volumes, like thicker than my Bible 14 volumes of theology. This was just one of the works of Karl Barth. But when asked to summarize his theology in just one sentence, Barth said this. He said, in the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. If you haven't learned this about me, I'm passionate about theology. I'm one who believes that doctrine matters. A.W. Tozer begins his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, with, with these incredible words. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. With Tozer, I, I believe that how we think about God matters immensely, that it's crucial that we think rightly about God. You know, every cult and every false religion in the world is nothing more than perverted thoughts about God. It's just wrong thoughts about who God is and what he's like. And so I'm an advocate for studying theology and for going deep with doctrine. You need to study the attributes of God. You need to know the difference between communicable and incommunicable attributes. But after you've explored all of the models of divine sovereignty and, and human responsibility, and after you've debated the merits of, of covenant theology versus dispensationalism, and after you've considered premillennial and amillennial and postmillennial perspectives of eschatology, and, 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 and you know, after all of those things, what you need to know most of all is what Karl Barth learned as a little boy, that Jesus loves me. 
And as Peter closes his letter, what he wants to impress upon these believers more than anything is that God cares about them. It's easy to begin to doubt that in the midst of a storm, isn't it? In the face of a trial, one can quickly begin to wonder, does God truly love me? Does he care about me? These believers were suffering through various trials for their faith. The fiery ordeal was upon them. They were feeling the heat. And as Peter closes his letter, he senses this need to remind them, hey, brothers and sisters, God cares about you. Maybe you need to be reminded of that this morning. Perhaps you've been in the midst of a hard season. Maybe you've limped in here this morning feeling overwhelmed by life. Maybe your faith has been wavering. Maybe you've doubted God's affection for you. Perhaps he seems remarkably distant to you in this moment. It could be that you came in here this morning on the verge of losing faith. Friend, listen to me. God cares about you. I remember going to a church training back in 2010. It was a, it's called Soma School. It was, it was for church planters um, who were trying to plant churches around this idea of missional community. Um, which our church has essentially adopted as a philosophy for our small groups. And I remember going, I, w- I was so excited to meet some of the leaders of this school. I was so excited. I, I-, I went in thinking, man, I'm going I'm- I'm to glean some-, some-, some ways to really implement these in our church, and it's going to be awesome. And about day three of Soma School, I found myself in a corner weeping. And here was the profound theological realization. God doesn't love me because I'm a church planter. He loves me because he loves me. And he has decided that I'm going to be his son. That he chose me and he predestined me and he adopted me for redemption and cleansing through his blood. And he poured his spirit into my heart and made me new and made me his own not predicated upon anything that I had done or would do, but simply because he wanted to. It is is one thing to confess intellectually, but it's a totally different thing to know intimately that God loves you, that God wants you to know the way a cradled child knows his mother affection, that he cares about you. And not only does he care about you, but he actually wants you to cast all of your cares upon him. Here Peter tells these believers, cast all of your cares upon him because he cares for you. Bring all of your worries and all of your fears and all your anxieties and all of your sadness and struggle and doubt right up to him and cast them upon him because he cares for you. God's shoulders are broad enough to bear whatever load it is that you need to lay upon them. And he is not put off by you coming to him. 
He's not so busy that he doesn't have time for your burdens. Some in this room this morning need to believe that God actually cares for you. And what more could he do to demonstrate his care and his love for you than to send his son into the world to die for you? What more could Jesus do than lay down his life for you, receive his affection this morning? But others of you, you need to take the added step of casting your cares upon him to stop bearing the load, to cast it upon the Lord. Are you believing the lie that God doesn't want to hear about your burden? That he is too busy to concern himself with you or that you shouldn't be feeling the way that you're feeling. Maybe some of you walk in feeling guilty for feeling a certain way. You're telling yourself, I shouldn't have this burden in the first place. Are you bottling up and pressing down what you need to bring to the Lord? I remember being in college and my friend Philip Wood, a mentor and a friend, teaching me something that he learned from a a guy named Dave Busby. That God wants to know you personally and intimately, that you can know God the way a child knows a father and walks right up to that father and crawls in his lap and grabs his daddy by the face and looks him in the eyes and talks to him, that God actually desires that sort of intimacy and relationship with you. You can cast all of your cares on him. Listen, to survive in the in-between, to live between the first and the second advent, you can't make it with a nominal faith in God. You need to begin to live with a real, affectionate, casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you sort of relationship with the Father. Live in the confidence of God's love. You have a God that cares for you, so be comforted. But also, secondly, you have an enemy who wants to devour you, so be watchful. It's the second thing that Peter says here. Be watchful. In his book, A Secular Age, philosopher Charles Taylor demonstrates in 870-something pages, of which I have not read the whole thing. I'm not going to fake it up here this morning. I, I read James K. Smith's Cliff's Notes. But he demonstrates very thoroughly that in the past few centuries, there has been a massive cultural shift in the West from from easily and naturally believing in the transcendent to an age in which belief is unnatural and difficult. That there was a time in the past when everyone naturally believed in unseen spiritual forces. That the world was perceived as, as Porous. In other words, angels and demons were understood to constantly be manipulating things. That our lives were recognized as susceptible to these unseen forces. There was, a, there was a time in the world where everybody believed that. But with modernism came a more naturalistic view of the world. The cosmos became a universe and our lives became buffered, to use Taylor's term. And what he means by this is that we're no, we no longer see ourselves as vulnerable to unseen spiritual forces. We're all naturally skeptical of the supernatural. According to a New York Times article I read, 
A Barna research poll found that nearly two-thirds of Americans do not believe in the devil as a living entity. Modernism has disenchanted us. And I feel this especially when I come to a verse like 1 Peter 5, 8, where Peter is telling these believers, be sober, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. I just wonder, when, when was the last time you genuinely acknowledged the idea of a real spiritual enemy who is actively plotting your demise? If your answer is recently, you're in the small minority. Even as those who profess faith in God, even as those who claim to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, it is easy for us, right? It's default for us. To, to live in this sort of naturalistic worldview and to go through our days without ever acknowledging that there is more to our world than meets the eye. But what Peter is telling us here is that there is a real spiritual realm and that we need a lens to see the world accurately, that we need a category for spiritual warfare. Here Peter uses the imagery of a prowling lion to depict the enemy, to depict the adversary of the church. And he's telling us that we have a spiritual enemy who is plotting our demise. There is more going on in our lives and in our world than we often consider. These believers who are facing persecution and trials and suffering and hardship need to know that behind those attacks are forces of darkness aiming to undo them, actively at work. And maybe some of us need to see the same reality, that, that beyond the surface of something you're facing currently, could it be that there's an enemy actually at work behind that? Now, we don't need to become the church lady from Saturday Night Live, right? The, the, the devil made me do it, right? But we do need to see beyond the surface, church. Maybe that person that you're seeing as the enemy actually isn't the real enemy. Maybe you need to identify the true adversary and the real battle. Friends, listen, the real battle that we're in is not physical. It's not geopolitical. It's not ideological. Behind all of that is a spiritual battle. And notice what Peter says. He says, resist him. Resist him. Some of you just need to believe this reality. The enemy is resistible. He's defeatable. And as much as we don't need to neglect the reality of Satan, we also don't need to give him too much authority over our lives. Peter says that we can stand against him. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Maybe you've been living in defeat. Believer in Jesus, listen to me. You are not inept to fight temptation. You are not unable to overcome. Satan is resistible. But you can only wage war with spiritual weapons. 2 Corinthians 10 reminds us that although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh, since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. 
why Paul would tell the Ephesian believers to put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. And then Paul goes on to tell them how they wage war in this spiritual battle, to take on the full armor of God. To stand with the truth like a belt around your waist, with righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. To take up the shield of faith. To take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And to pray at all times in the Spirit. We fight spiritual battles with spiritual weapons. Paul points us specifically to the Word and prayer. And here in our passage, Peter tells believers to resist the devil firm in the faith. We fight by faith with the weapons of faith. So just some diagnostic questions for us to consider. Are you living with an awareness of a real enemy? Peter tells us to be sober-minded and alert. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane telling his friends, watch and pray with me. As you live in the in-between, Peter's telling us you have to learn to live by word and prayer. Be watchful. But also, he tells us, be hopeful. Because you have a future that is assured to you. That's the third thing we see here. Be watchful, but also be hopeful. In the great divorce, C.S. Lewis imagines that heaven once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. What what Lewis is saying is that when we attain to heaven, it's actually going to work history in reverse, and it's going to undo all of our agony and turn it into glory. All of the pain, suffering, hurt, the loss, Everything sad in this life will somehow, through Jesus, mysteriously and gloriously be transformed into joy in the life that is to come. J.R.R. Tolkien actually created a word for this. He called it eucatastrophe. A catastrophe is is a tragic overturning. It's, It's an undoing of things. But a eucatastrophe is a good overturning. It's a reversal of the tragic ending. If bad things happen on our way to the ever after, we're reminded that they will not become our final destination, that there is always hope in a destination greater than any earthly happiness. In verse 6 of our passage, Peter exhorts these believers to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. And that phrase, mighty hand of God, is one that's used repeatedly in the Exodus account. And by alluding to it, what Peter is, is signaling is, is that these believe, for these believers is that just as God delivered Israel out of these terrible circumstances and led them into a promised land, so too we will be rescued by Jesus. In the Egypt and in the wilderness of life, Canaan is coming. That's what Peter is signaling. Everything sad will come untrue. This is the promise and the hope of the gospel. Peter tells us in verse 10, the God of all grace, 
who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you suffered a little while. Peter says, yes, this life has suffering, but after you've suffered a little while, then God himself will restore you. The God of all grace who called you will complete you. He who began the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so here's what this means for us in the here and now. Everything you will ever need in this life, you already have in God. What is true ultimately in the life to come is already true for us presently. And so if you need restoring, God himself will restore you. If you need establishing, God will steady your feet. If you need strengthening, God will empower you. If you need support, God will uphold you. What Peter is telling his readers is that a eucatastrophe is coming. And so they can live with certain hope. You know, biblical hope is not like the way we use hope. When we say, man, I hope, what we mean is we don't know but we really want it to turn out a certain way. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it's telling us it's certain. It just hasn't come to pass yet. It's a certain hope. And we can live with hope. We can live as Easter people, even in an Advent world. Because God himself will fully restore us. The one who called us will complete us. He is taking us into Canaan. The promised land is a sure thing. And when we begin to live this way and believe this way, notice what happens in verse 11. Suddenly Peter transitions from theology to doxology. He, he, he progresses from information to adoration. This is what hope looks like in real time. It looks an awful lot like worship. To him be the glory or the dominion forever. Amen. As we live in the in-between, we can have such a hope in the gospel that we sing our way to Zion. This is what the pilgrims of old did. The Psalms of Ascent, they were, they were climbing the mountain and they were singing to their God. God is working behind the scenes. Things will not always be this way. He is presently with you to strengthen and establish and uphold. One day he's going to fully restore you. A you catastrophe is coming. And so we sing, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Believer, you have a future that is assured to you. So be hopeful. And in the meantime, Peter says, anchor your life on Jesus. As Peter puts the period on this epistle, his, his final encouragement to these believers is simply to anchor their lives on the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the last thing we see here. Not only to be watchful and hopeful, but to be steadfast. Look at verse 12. He says, Through Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Stand firm upon the true grace of God. By, by true grace, I think what Peter is referring to is the entire message he's just delivered in the letter. 
The message that we have been born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That through his own suffering, Jesus has conquered all evil and has called us to follow his footsteps through life, through death, and into glory. That those who follow Jesus will be vindicated and glorified by God just as Jesus would. That God is the just judge because he's the creator and he's the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that all who enter through Christ, enter into this new covenant through Christ's blood and, and have complete hope and that therefore we should stand fast in that knowledge because everything else will soon end. Peter is saying, anchor yourself in the gospel. Listen, every single one of us is anchoring our lives on something. Every single one of us is building our lives on something, some idea, some hope, some philosophy, some pursuit or, or meaning, some notion about what happens at the end of this life, some message of salvation. Every single one of us is building our lives on something. But not every foundation is a worthy one. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his listeners, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a man, a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the rivers rose and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the rivers rose, and the winds blew, and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. What Jesus is saying is this. The rains are unavoidable. The, the winds are unavoidable. They come to the righteous and the unrighteous. Nobody escapes suffering in this life. Nobody escapes hardship in this life. But what you build your life on is the all-critical matter. And if you build your life on the wrong foundation, you will not stand when the rains come. Something will take you out. Your faith will get washed out. But if you build your life on Jesus, the rain will fall and the rivers will rise and the winds will blow, and yet you will stand secure because your life is built on the rock. And as Peter closes his final exhortation to these believers, his final word to us is to build your life on the rock of Jesus Christ, to stand firm in the true grace of God. If you want to live with Easter hope in an Advent world, what Peter's telling us is it's found in Jesus. That's how you live that way. So anchor your life on Jesus. Build your life on the good news of his grace, on his gospel. And no matter what may come, you'll stand. And then heaven's coming after that. Let's pray together.